Hi everyone, George here with another Patreon preview. This is a very fun legal thriller where I actually got to step down from the lofty judge's bench and put on the litigant gloves to mix it up myself. The rest of the courtroom is filled out with great former guests and friends of mine from the weekly podcast Massacre, Five Day Rentals, and Horror Drafts as my competitor, a trio of judges, and the bailiff, respectively. If you enjoy this, hopefully you'll consider joining the Patreon. It's just $5 a month to get all kinds of fun bonus episodes just like this one, and more including spotlight episodes where the hosts of Two Old Queens talk about their pick for the gayest horror movie ever made, and this month's bonus, Eric Peacock from Soundtracker is back to talk about Session 9. Plus, you help support an independent podcast and keep this thing going. So check out the Patreon, and check out the podcast of all the guests on this episode, because they're all big-time sweeties who I love chatting with, and they constantly help me out with the show. Thanks again to the fellows for coming on, and enjoy! Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to a very special legal thriller. For those who aren't familiar, normally, two litigants argue some movie cases that I've set out before them. They go back and forth with some prodding by me as judge to get to the bottom of three prepared cases. But today, we're switching things up a bit. I've always known that I had the correct opinions. So today, I'm actually going to be one of the litigants arguing before the court. But I'm not the judge, so who is? Well, here to introduce the honorable source-required trio is our distinguished bailiff, who you might remember from the Hitcher episode of the main feed. Uh, I hear he's moved to Philadelphia and has picked up the accent quickly. Brantley is here. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, George. Thank you, Mid. All right. All right. I uh, I, I, I feel like it's, um, it is hitting a little bit of the Delco area. I'm, I'm definitely hearing some of the notes. Welcome. I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Are you ready to um, throw out any unruly? Uh, I presume the judges are more likely to get unruly than the other litigant. Oh, I, I'm ready, George, whatever you want. And by the way, if, if anyone needs a water, I stopped at uh, Wawa last night and got a case. So just Perfect. let me know and I'll get you one. OK, Perfect. This is a Wawa house, not a Sheets house. So that was the nice. correct, correct thing to do. Yeah, that's the way to go. <laughs> um, all right, great. And we have our judges as well since their appearance. As combatants in the triple threat legal thriller from September of 2022, they went to uh, judge school and got an accelerated degree, and they're now the best little horror house Supreme Court. It's Cron Howard, Laundry Dan, and Bones from Five Day Rentals. What's up, boys? I bought my legal degree online. Yeah, online so school is still easy school peasy, there, dude. George. They still give them away in Cracker Jack boxes. That's where I got mine. <laughs> I recognize those degrees as uh, as legit in this court. So, and then sitting across from me, my bitter rival, the man from the Golden Coast, as well as the Return of the Living Dead episode, it's Greg Anderson. Hello, George. Hello, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Your Honors. Hello, Brantley. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the respect, hey, Greg. Looking forward to. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course. I uh, unfortunately do not respect these judges. <laughs> But, but I will, but I will gavel, respect, gavel, I will, gavel. <laughs> for tonight, I will respect their decisions. Uh, the format uh, is going to be pretty much the same. Uh, there's going to be three cases that Greg and I have had the questions ahead of time. We have our cases prepared. Uh, and then I believe that there might be some speed round questions as well. Uh, what's going on with that, judges? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's we're going to. There's a speed round. Oh, yeah. I love that. So we don't we're not prepared for those. We're going to be going off the cuff with those answers. But uh, uh, why don't you tell us uh, about a little bit about our first case, gentlemen? Bailiff, bring it to order. 
All right, no problem. All rise. The Supreme Court of the best little horror house in Philly is now presided. Is now in session. Hang on a second. Sorry, my cat was there. Uh, the honorable judges Bones, Cron Howard, and Laundry Dan are now presiding. Take it away, judges. Can, can we be seated? Oh, yeah. Go ahead and sit down. Cron, I think we're starting with you and your question, my friend. Judge Cron, yes. All right, I have the floor. Gavel. Gavel. <laughs> Guys, your first question is, what is the best B movie? I think we're going to start with the guest. I think we're going to start with Greg. <clears throat> okay. All right. This actually is a little different than the question we were presented beforehand. Uh-oh. But, you know, I think the answer is still the same. <laughs> How was it worded there? I'm with Greg. I'm with Greg. Best representation of a B movie. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what is the best representation <laughs> of a B movie. <laughs> hey, thank you, Justice Cron. I, I will say I'm going to start with a true blue classic B movie. Uh, when a person thinks of a B movie, I think the layperson will think, well, something that's bad, something that's cheap and maybe doesn't have a much value, something lesser than other movies. But that is not true. That can be true. Often it is. However, the movie I have picked... Um, the correct answer for this question is Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Wow. Something at a George's own hometown, um, directed by George A. Romero. This was this fits the bill for a B movie to the T. It is a low budget, no recognizable actors. It is done on the cheap. It's got a pretty corny ass title, Night of the Living Dead, designed just to reel you in, right? And, uh, hey, it also shows the flip side of B-movies, that because of their status as non-studio usually or lesser, they are allowed to do things that A-movies cannot do. This was an early example of a movie having a black lead of any genre, and that would have not flown in an A-movie. They would have wanted a bigger name and somebody who was probably, you know, somebody who was white. But instead, George Romero managed to alter the course of film history in many, many ways. Um, not just in terms of casting, but in terms of violence and in terms of allegory. He showed what genre movies can do and uh, the, the heights they can reach when you are not constrained by bigger names and bigger budgets. Thank you, Greg. Uh, let's, let's hear from George. Yes, George. All right. George, same question. All right. So there were several things that I considered. This was the question that I had the most difficulty with. I'll say right up top. Plan 9 from Outer Space is a movie that people love to point and laugh at. I, I think it's actually a fun little movie. There were movies that started out as B-movies, but sort of escaped the idea of it because they were so good. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like Night of the Living Dead. You know, I think that it is... I. I I know I have this in the bag because I thought about Night of the Living Dead as my answer and then decided, no, that's not right. That's right. I even also considered Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast for inventing the splatter film. But instead, what I've done is select a movie that combines all three. Frank Henenlotter's Basket Case. Frank himself is an exploitation filmmaker's exploitation filmmaker whose first short played with John Waters' Pink Flamingos in 1972. Then you give him 10 more years, and he's not only paying homage to those that came came before him, dedicating Basket Case to Herschel Gordon Lewis, having now perfected his progenitor, 
but also creating the template for today's B-movies, like Malignant, which I think is great, but undeniably takes chunks of this movie whole cloth. And Frank really leaned into those roots. You know, he, he found inspiration among the Times Square theaters that he literally called the underbelly. He's quoted as feeling that there is an artistic unity in setting Basket Case in a grimy hotel right there in Times Square. And it's a representative of a bygone era when films with Edge were actually outsider art and not just another commoditized bucket of schlock. And, you know, there are so many things that point to this. They have all the classic B-movie issues. It took four years to make because they kept running out of money. They used a 16-millimeter camera because they couldn't afford a 35-millimeter one. They created an incredible, iconic horror uh, villain in Belial. He's interesting. He has he persists to this day. Him jumping out of the basket is a classic image. He's even been used on Whose Line Is It Anyway? Belial himself is in several different forms, which is a, another a hallmark of B-movies, is sort of the, the puppet existing in these little half bits. And it's just so perfectly emblematic of B-movies and exploitation films and everything. And like I said, I thought about Night of the Living Dead. And as great as it is, and I do, I would consider it a B-movie, but I don't consider it a good representation of a B-movie, because if you ask the normal person what they think about Night of the Living Dead, they have today's, like, looking back perspective at it. It has all of the re- respect that it is due, but people, part of being a B-movie is, like, people looking down on you and you kind of thumbing your nose in that. Uh, in that disrespect. And I think that that's exactly what Basket Case does. Uh, I think whenever we were kind of getting the questions together, this this was something we talked about internally, but I guess just as like a quick follow-up, I mean, how would you describe what constitutes a B-movie? We'll start again with Greg. Historically, back when theaters are owned by studios, they are programming their movies with like A, B format. So your A movie is going to have the bigger stars, the bigger names, the bigger draws. The B movie is there to fill out the schedule. Typically, it's going to be something lesser they don't think is going to be drawing people in. Um, so I think you need a little bit of that energy in today's definition of B movie. Something that you may not think initially is going to to interest people. It's going to be inherently niche. Um, it's going to have a less recognizable cast and possibly a lower budget. I think those are all factors that need to be in play. I can't say that I disagree with any of those things, but I think that that describes Basket Case to a T. And I think that on top of that, that it has the grit that's associated with B-movies. Frank Henenlotter, as much as I love him, he's not the cleanest filmmaker. You know, it, Some of the shots are a little slapdash. Some things are not quite perfect. He says, oh, this is good enough because we're broke as fuck. George Romero is such an incredible filmmaker that that movie is so fully formed out of the gate. It is so well done. And it is the fact that it is saying something, even though Romero is like, Oh, it wasn't saying anything. It's so clearly saying something that it sort of like, like I said, escapes the ceiling of B movie and enters the canon of just movies that everybody knows. But 
Bas- Basket Case is the definition of a B movie. Like it is, it's not one that everybody knows. It's dirty. It's grimy. It's bloody. Uh, there's a monster in it. <laughs> like it's, it truly is the best representation of a B movie. To to counter the argument, I agree. Romero is an incredible, impeccable filmmaker, and Hen and Lauder maybe has some rougher edges and things like that. However. The crew of Night Living Dead. Somebody in that crew made the, one of the biggest fuck-ups in the history of B-movies that forever changed things. And they forgot to fucking copyright the movie. That does not happen on an A-movie. That is amateur-level mistake that has a huge, <laughs> wide influence on the rest of uh, the genre. Because you can screen that anywhere you want. You can use clips of it in anything you want. And because of that, it got seen by people. So maybe, maybe, uh, Basket Case is lesser known, and that adds to its like street cred as a B movie. But Night Living Dead is the perfect teaching tool for what the basis of all B movies are. And if we're talking about influence. I mean, sure, you know, Basket Case is influencing things like Malignant, which is obviously made a lot of money and is popular. But the zombie genre is an identity for some people. There's people who don't like horror and just like zombie stuff. My grandmother watched Walking every single episode of The Walking Dead, and that would not happen without Night of the Living Dead. I think that that ubiquity is damaging to your argument because it is so popular that even if it started out as a B movie, it has the the reach of an A movie now. And I don't think that's the case for Basket Case. I think that if you ask five people, maybe one of them is going to know it. And I think that if you say, do you know Night of the Living Dead? Five out of five people are going to know that movie. If we're talking representation of a B-movie, though. Exactly, exactly. And I'm saying, I'm saying that... You, got the, you need that number condition. If you're trying to teach somebody who has no idea what a B-movie is, they're not going to have seen Basket Case. They're not going to have heard exactly. of it. Exactly. I think that that's part of it. I think that if you say, oh, it's a movie you've seen, then they're going to go, oh, well, what the, what the hell is this? I think it's easier like, to teach them then, you know, as representation of, of the entire concept of a B-movie. Co-judges, do you have any questions, or shall we move to a round of voting? I would like to ask, in, in, in a way, you both have sort of already touched on this, and specifically the legacy. Um, a B-movie can get a, a cult status, right? M- more likely it's going to gain. I mean, that's sort of why we created the word. And, and George, you sort of countered with this sort of touching on the legacy of something. Can a B-movie outgrow itself? Can it be too good for its own purpose? I'm gonna start, yeah. I think yes. I, th- I, th- I think that it can, because the fact of the matter is that a B-movie was the lesser, was the lesser movie, and... Like it, it just it was cheap and and yeah that might be how Night of the Living Dead started is this this cheap thing that went on every channel because it was free for them to put on, but because it has had such influence because it is the grandfather of so many things, it is a hugely popular thing. Everybody knows this movie, and maybe that makes it easier to. Like delve into the history of it, but I don't think that that makes it a good representation of a B-movie, because part of being a B-movie is being outsider art. And, and, and maybe 
Night of the Living Dead started that way, but Basket Case still grosses people out. It is still medical oddity stuff <laughs> that is bizarre and off-putting to people. There is weird family dynamics. There is the seedy underbelly of New York that doesn't even exist anymore. This 70s New York that they put on film, it's a time capsule. And Night of the Living Dead, unfortunately, you know, you go out to Central and Western PA and you could probably go to those exact locations and it'll look exactly the same. Like, it's, it's, I just think that for its time capsule elements, for its grime, for its outsider edge that still exists, still persists, and still shocks people, even in the movies that it influences, that that's why... Uh, basket case is a more perfect representation of uh, B movie. I will say, I think George is more describing a cult film than a B movie. And there is a distinction because I absolutely agree with everything you're saying in terms of cult films or exploitation movies. However, studios used to make B movies. That was the original definition of them. They were just cheaper things that they made that they could play second after a bigger, more expensive feature. Nowadays, of course we have the, you know, a uh, much more robust independent film movement that cropped up and B movies get made that way. But that is not necessarily the actual definition of a B movie. It does not have to be an independent feature. I mean, Night of the Living Dead was, as was Basket Case. And so they both, I, I think you're right in terms of independent cult films, you need that outsider edge and you need that maybe kind of like underground grittiness you were talking about. However, I don't think it disqualifies. I think, I don't think being popular disqualifies Night of the Living Dead. All right, guys, this was the question I submitted. I'll go ahead and give my ruling here. Uh, the other two judges will vote, so this is just one-third. Um, but I do think it's interesting that you guys have kind of approached this from different angles. I almost feel like it's a historic definition argument versus like a modern interpretation. And I don't know, to me, I kind of come down on the side of like, if I think of what a B movie is to me, it would kind of be that thing where when I was 13, I had the volume on four and I was worried, <laughs> you know, that my parents were going to walk upstairs and see what I was watching and be mortified by it. And I do think there, a B movie to me does need to have some kind of grittiness, some rough around the edges, some, you know, just something that people don't know about and is special to the person watching it. And it does kind of gain that cult status. So I don't know, I guess I am kind of more in line with that modern interpretation. I'm going with basket case. Thank you, judge Cron. Bailiff. Do you have your finger on the trigger? Oh, I, I'm ready to throw them back in their seats. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I just want, I just yeah. want to make sure. So it's, it's, it's been, it's been pleasant so far, but uh, mm -hmm. these gentlemen came to fight. Uh, gentlemen, both arguments well executed. Uh, I had to scratch out about three questions because you both sort of answered them in your arguments very well. Um, I will say I, I do have to back up Kron's argument. I would like to sort of build and discuss on content. Now, the content of Night of the Living Dead at the time would be very disruptive. I mean, it's, I believe it was prior to any sort of rating system. 
got a lot of flack for a lot of the stuff that it features. Um, but I don't think in, in, in any way was it uh, meant to be sort of titillating. And Basket Case's content is is there for titillation, sadly. <laughs> and sadly, uh, I'm going to say sadly one more time. I do believe that... <laughs> yeah, geez, uh, Louise. <laughs> I, I, I think Night of the Living Dead works against itself in terms of being too good. I have to come down. I, I'm going Basket Case. Thank you, Judge Bones. Two beautiful arguments, gentlemen. I did uh, do the research on this. Yeah, we we do the research. Judges do. Um, I I think Night of the Living Dead did wonders for zombie movies. I think yes. Without without that, nothing zombie happens. I got to lean towards basket case because I feel like when a filmmaker or a person who wants to be a filmmaker watches that, they're like, holy shit, I could do that. <laughs> like all of that in there. I think it just adds more to the B-ness than Night of the Living Dead, I think. Thank I'm you, sorry, Judge Laundry Dan. Gavel, unanimous decision. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like a... this. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you okay, man? You seem kind of... I'm, I don't know, I'm bummed out, man. This is, people do this for real and shit? <laughs> hey, you know, you can reverse your decision and maybe some other questionable decisions this court has made <laughs> in the past couple months. Hey, Bones, I'll take away that victory so quick your head will yeah, spin. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm blackmailed here, Greg. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Just kidding, just kidding. This is a legit court. And that was a great argument, Greg. I was so close to picking Night of the Living Dead. I was so close. All right. Well, thank you. I mean, I was close to picking Basket Case. And as soon as I heard you say the words, I was like, this is uh, this is going to be way harder than I thought. There you go. Judge Dan? Gentlemen, uh, question two was from me. And that was, what film has the best use of the one-shot long take? Let's start with let's start with George this time. Let's start with me and let's go back to one of the biggest blockbusters of all time baby. You know it's coming. You know what it is. It's Jaws. Not only one of the best blockbusters of all time, but it also has the best use of that technique because it is found in the movie over and over again. So effortlessly blended in that people don't even notice all of them. There are three extremely long takes, plus several more that are significantly longer than the average shot length of 5.5 seconds in 1975, to say nothing of the current sub-5-second average. There are some great examples that I'll point out right away. First, pretty long shot at the very beginning when you see Christy and the boy looking across the fire at each other, and then another with Quint at the chalkboard. <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes in movies. I love it. I literally have... Uh, his little shark drawing on my wrist here and him sitting there and everyone just being like, who the fuck is this weirdo um, is so great. And they give you the time to absorb it, to absorb what he's offering. Um, Hooper inspecting the first body and trying to keep his lunch down and, and talking into the recorder. 
calling it a squalus. It's just a, a delightful scene. It's very funny, even as it's very grim. And those are just the pretty long shots. The actual very long shots where the on the ferry where the mayor puts the squeeze on Brody about not shutting down the beach, about calling it a boating accident, is as slick as the mayor is. You don't even notice it because everyone is so comfortable. The elder statesmen of the town are convincing Martin. The mayor brings him right up close into frame, says you yell Barracuda. Everyone goes, huh, what? But you yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on 4th of July. And you feel like you're part of the conversation, part of this secret, part of this uh, conspiracy because you've been watching them this whole time. It's, It's not been cutting back and forth. It builds that way to draw you in. You get another when the billboard is defaced. Such a great reveal. It's three minutes long with overlapping dialogue, several extras, bobbing and weaving among the trio. And then my number one, probably probably the best movie or the best scene in cinema. I, I think it is probably my favorite scene is Quinn's monologue on the Orca. It's led into with a pretty long shot itself where they're comparing their wounds. But then when the atmosphere shifts... And he launches into the harrowing tale of the USS Indianapolis. June the 29th, 1945, 1,100 men go into the water. 316 men come out. Sharks took the rest. The nice thing is with this movie is that the long shots never feel like a gimmick. In many other movies, it does. And you, it's, it's so overly flashy as to be gauche. And in Jaws, that's never the case. It blends in... Or it adds to the tension, like with this Indianapolis one, where it really lets you sit in it and stew. And that movie is so deft with its deployment of tension, of stringing you along the whole time. And I think that that does not happen. The movie is not nearly as successful as it is without its use of the long shot. Greg? Man, I got got my work cut out for me with this one because I, I went for my decision... I went for a B-movie myself in this one. I kind of carried on that spirit from the first question. And I'm going to say a movie... I mean, it's tough because Jaws is one of the most well-known films of all time. I'm going to say a movie that I doubt most people had heard of before I even uh, you know, gave my answer to the judges uh, beforehand. But I chose uh, Gary Sherman's Death Line from 1973. A precursor to things like Chud and Castle Freak. Deathline is about a cannibalistic man that lives underneath a London subway in an abandoned tube station. And there is a long take that starts at 23 minutes and 26 seconds and ends at 30 minutes and 43 seconds. It lasts 7 minutes and 18 seconds. George, I heartily agree about the flashiness of the long take from a lot of other filmmakers. Uh, Recently, Babylon has a lot of long takes that really call attention themselves and are more just about, hey, look at the flashiness, look at the chaos that we were capturing, look at the, uh, you know, isn't it wild we kept the camera running and went all these different places? However, something like Deathline, which does call attention to the long take, actually manages to incorporate that into the themes of the film and gives you real context for what the characters are experiencing in the movie. This long take starts on a close-up of a rat eating a corpse in an extreme close-up, and that shot morphs into many other takes as it circles around this cannibal's lair, pulls itself through a window and a door, and continues down a long, 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 long hallway to show you how isolated and lonely 
and horrible this person's life is. And it uh, sums up the movie. The movie is kind of a Frankenstein story. This is a man who is, is born of people trapped in a subway station after a collapse. And you, uh, you at first, starting on those bodies, think this, this is the, some kind of monster lair. He's murdering and eating people. But as the tape goes on, you build more and more sympathy for him as you see the horrible conditions that he has lived in his entire life. So it's a story-motivated long take that does call attention to itself, but it enriches the film all the more because you are noticing how long and lonely and isolated this whole thing is. Did anyone ever see Deathline? <laughs> I, I admit that I have not seen it, and it does sound interesting, and it does sound effective, I, I admit. But to me, Jaws is not what it is without the tension because because Bruce didn't work. Because they had a broken shark, they had to figure out other ways to keep that horror tension taut, and that's through the use of the long take. That's how they do it. I think that it's so part and parcel of the movie, and that is one of the best movies ever made. I mean... Maybe maybe it's like lame to be like, yeah, I fucking love Jaws because like because, yeah, everybody loves Jaws. But the fact of the matter is that everybody loves Jaws. Like it's fucking incredible. And and the fact that that such a such an interesting and difficult to pull off technique is just another paint on the palette for this movie. It, and, and that it I think that it's it's not something that another uh, another director would be able to handle. And, and I think that it, it's so perfectly emblematic of what makes Spielberg so great. Well, George, you said it right there. It's just another part of his palette. It is just another thing he puts in that movie. It is just, an, we're talking about the greatest use of it. And yeah. that's the, the long take is maybe eighth on the list of what people would cite as to what makes Jaws great. They're going to talk about the shark. They're going to talk about the music. They're going to talk about the performances. They're going to talk about other factors of cinematography. The long take is going to be mentioned, but it's going to be way down the list. In Deathline, this long take is a centerpiece of the film. It is something, when you watch it, you remember that long take. And people would be surprised, I think, if you told them in Jaws, hey, that Quint scene, that's all one take. That big monologue is someone to be like, oh, interesting. I didn't really think about it because I was too engrossed in the words. However, in Deathline, you are totally focused on how long this take is going on. And it is adding to the story. It is adding to the characterization of the underground cannibal. And it is really showing off the skills of director Gary Sherman and what he can do with the camera. There's so much movement involved with it, starting in an extreme close-up, pulling out to wide establishing shots of the space, spinning around going down a hallway and then focusing and it ends again on an extreme close-up of a skeleton buried in rubble from it. Th there's so many different shots contained within this long take that it really shows you the power of what you can do and shows the skills of we have to capture everything, get all these different types of shots and setups in one take. I uh, first want to rebut what you said about people not pointing out the, the long takes because I think that they would without even noticing because when they say, oh, I love Spielberg's direction, this is what they're talking about. This is Spielberg. This is what he's bringing to the table here. And 
I think that the fact that they don't notice them speaks to the quality, speaks to the effortlessness with which they're blended into the movie. You know, maybe maybe it's not something that everybody notices, but the people who care about movies and the people who pay attention to the things that make them up know about Jaws and know about and notice these long takes and say, wow, it's incredible that these are so deftfully done. And it's true that they don't happen without those actors being as great as they are. But it's a symbiotic relationship because those actors don't get those chances to shine without Spielberg putting the camera on them and letting them just actually act. I would say more important to like the direction of Spielberg and what people would notice about it is actually the opposite. The quick editing that he pioneered in Jaws is far more what people, I think, notice. When you have that climax on the Orca him trying to shoot the explosive. It is so filled with short, quick cuts that had not been done much in movies up till then. There's a type of action editing that nobody had seen. So I think that's going to be the more standout feature of Spielberg's direction at Jaws rather than the long takes. The long takes are impressive, but I think what people will remember about that movie is the quickness and the efficiency of the editing, which is the opposite of long takes. Well, those those quick cuts only are impactful because you've spent so long with these long takes. It stands out and is deployed at the end because you've been having this tension. And that's the shoe drop is suddenly you're getting these action shots. Suddenly the shark is there. And finally the confrontation is happening, but you don't get that impact if it's without having all of these long, slow moments before it. George did uh, answer my one question that I had. I was going to ask him to pick one shot from Jaws and defend it. Judges, do we have any other questions? Well, I, I guess my follow-up question would be, like, do you think that if you have this, you know, long shot throughout the film, like, should it be a thing that the audience notices and engaged in? Um, because I kind of think that's almost the argument here. Like, Spielberg does use a lot of them, but if you look at that fairy shot, I mean, the camera doesn't move at all. It's a stationary. I, that, that's not true. That's not even true. Well, but it's well, like. Hey, whoa, whoa. Settle, settle down. <laughs> Let the judge talk. I mean. Yeah, I apologize. The, the movement is like the fairy is moving and the people on the ferry are moving. But for the most part, the camera is pretty stationary. Or should those long shots almost be a thing where, you know, you're Leo DiCaprio pointing at the screen and being like, oh, look at this crazy effect that they're doing. You know, like, look at this crazy thing that they've managed to pull off. Um, so should they just blend in or should it be like, you know, the the part of the movie that you walk away thinking, oh, I was really impressed by this? <laughs> yeah. I uh, Look, here's the thing. And, and maybe I misspoke. And I apologize for, for getting uh, riled up there before, your honors. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... The nice thing about these, and I will say, I think that you're underplaying the movement on that scene because he is, there is, as the actors are moving, he is keeping everybody in frame. He's bobbing around. He's keeping the scene balanced. And I think that that isn't as easy as you're making it out to be. But nevertheless, I think that they blend in until they're pointed out. Once you know that they're there and when you're looking for them, you go, oh my God, I can't believe how many of these are in here and how well they're they're utilized you know the orca scene is so powerful and and when you're like just looking at it and being like i am so scared of quint and like what he's been through 
and and you're just so drawn into it and i agree that maybe you don't notice it at first and 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 that's because of the charisma of these actors but i think that once you're looking at the movie as a whole and not just experiencing it as a narrative when you're looking at the pieces of it as a film i think that it is something that you notice and it is something that sticks out because of the the sort of underplaying of it to talk about this with Deathline, I think in the context of that movie, you absolutely need to notice the long take. I will also take someone in the comments suggestions. I mentioned that it's a Donald Pleasance film, and I think it's his best performance. I don't know if that's going to win me any points, but he is uh, in top form in that movie. Not, Not involved in the long take. So, um, <laughs> However, with that, like I said with that movie, it is integral to the themes of it. That is a, Deathline is a movie about class and a person's place in society. And the less the less fortunate, and I think without that long take to really hammer in how much this guy's life fucking sucks, that movie is nowhere near as effective. It is a movie built on this long take to show you that he is the least of us in society, and I think you absolutely need to notice the long take for that. And I think there's a stigma against noticing camera movements, against noticing filmmaking techniques it's the whole argument of invisible camera right and i think that's an outdated view i think you can absolutely notice things in movies you can absolutely notice hey the filmmaker is pulling this trick and this is, is using this technique and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing i think it's all in the context of the film and in the context of Deathline, it is vital that you notice how long that take goes on and again seven minutes this is a seven minute take can george tell me the length of the longest take in jaws do you know it i only measured the the one of them and it was like three and change three and change versus seven minutes and 18 seconds done over and over again though my dear boy (laughs) (laughs) judge cumulative cumulative (laughs) judge bones any follow-up i think i have enough gentlemen as do I. Kron, or Judge Kron, sorry. Anything? Uh, no, I'm ready to vote. Okay. Um, my question, Deathline, I did watch it. I think all the judges did, Greg. And just so you know, I like Babylon. Keep that in mind <laughs> later on. Um, I like the long takes in it, I will say. I was kind of being facetious. Deathline to my knowledge, was made in 1972. Jaws, to my knowledge, was made in 1975. Mm. I think that the long take in Deathline means more to that movie than what it does in Jaws. I'm, I'm going, Greg. I'm going with Deathline. That's wow. my decision. Huh? All right. I think whenever we sent the questions out and got the responses back, this was the one like that I was most torn on going in just because it is, it is arguing like, what is the more impressive feat? Is it, you know, having this really long take in the middle or is it just the fact that Spielberg is so, you know, ahead of the game in every aspect that he can just punch in a long take whenever he wants to use it (laughs) and, you know, use it as just a, another, you know, color on the palette, as we were saying. Um, I think to me, I kind of lean towards Jaws on this one just because 
It is so frequent throughout the film. And it's just, I felt like the one in Deathline, you are looking like, you know, under the ground. It's all tight spaces. It's all a claustrophobic kind of feel, which is really, really impressive. But when I look at that compared to like these big open landscapes, it just feels so monumental when you watch it. So I got to, I mean, I was super torn on this one. I, I think the shot in Deathline is super impressive. And considering the year that it was made, I was really blown away by it. But at the end of the day, I'm voting Jaws on this one. Thank you, Judge Cron. I had several factors going into this. I have, I'm definitely victim of the one take fanboy. I am that Leo meme of pointing out to my wife. Did you notice this was all one take? Or pausing to try to get a, a timestamp on that. Um, something in film that that I've always loved and appreciated. And as I've gotten older, and I like to think a little bit more uh, nuanced with stuff, the, the issue of complexity comes up. And for me, the most complex thing in a frame should be the character, should be the actor. And ultimately, I believe that Jaws wins out because it features more acting, more blocking. It progresses the story more throughout. I do believe that Deathline has some incredible complexity, specifically through that, through that door. Um, I immediately went back to a 25 year old bones and was backing it up and trying to see when I could see the seam. Was it a handoff? Was it this? I I've never had to do that with in watching jaws. Each one of those sequences, like to, to reiterate Quint's speech, um, the billboard within that you've got actors acting. You have characters in Deathline. You have a space ultimately. Um, it is the introduction of that character, but I don't think it's 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 near as effective as Jaws. Sadly, I'm coming down. Jaws. Sadly or not, I'll take it. Thank you, Judge Bones. Thank you for letting or making me watch Deathline. By the way, Greg, it was it, it was cool. a, it a ton of fun. It was it was this was tough. Wow. Greg, un- Greg is unhappy about this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bones' whole speech and it was a whole roller coaster, just like. I love complexity. Here's how complex Deathline is, but it still loses, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, hey, I I completely disagree with the complexity of character. I think that introduction, I think it's characterization through the space itself. There's maybe not many people in it, but I think that itself speaks volumes about that movie and the characters that you do see in it. The fact that there is no people in it. The fact that the two people you see are mute cannibals one of which is like a dying pregnant woman and our villain of the movie who we know nothing about except for that he is a cannibalistic villain is only seen crying over the loss of his loved one i think there is great complexity in the characters in that in deathline so just saying judge cron it does scratch the castle freak i surface. i mentioned castle freak for a reason too i thought that would uh, <laughs> that would just help put that out there we'll put that in our notes for Bailiff, where do we stand right now? Judges, right now, uh, George is leading two to nothing. Okay. All right. 
this last argument, you guys, are- it's going to be complete reversal of every case, I swear. People are going to think that the fix is in, but I swear it's not. Question three, gentlemen. What is the best dog character in film history? Mm. And Greg, we start with you. Wow. Another question. Okay. The best dog character in film history. To me, this was one that came to mind immediately. Um, I'm going to say the best dog dog character in history is in fact played by a dog actor named Dog. And this is the dog that portrayed Dog in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. He is Max's faithful companion on the road, alone. He proves that no man is an island, that even at Max's lowest points, he needs that companionship of man's best friend. And he is a faithful and extremely capable ally. He manages to... (laughs) He has a method of using guns... (laughs) <laughs> that is real badass and real funny. And he has amazing on-screen chemistry, not just with Mel Gibson, but with Bruce Spence, who plays the gyrocopter pilot. And that duo is one of the finest comedic duos in, in film history for my money. They play off each other so well. They complement each other just perfectly. And they provide a lot of heart and warmth to this movie that is bleak and you know, and in most other respects, pretty depressing. However, you have this dog at the heart of it that shows you that maybe not all is bad in the post-apocalypse. You got your pal dog with you. It's a great answer. And when I got this question over and over again, I thought of ways that I might be overly clever and sort of skirt the answer. And I said, maybe a reservoir dog. Perhaps Barf from Spaceballs. He's half man, half dog, all John Candy. What's not to love? But ultimately, he was a mog, not a dog. And I wanted this to be a real argument. And that's why I chose Air Bud. <laughs> Folks, I, uh, I'm going to do something a little unprecedented. And um, I'm going to screen share for Exhibit A. Wait, wait, is this allowed? Hold on. Yeah, wait, Judge, is this okay? I'll, I'll allow it. All right. I'll allow it, but this better be going somewhere, George. Oh, it is. <laughs> Let me show Watch yourself, you. counselor. Exhibit A. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. Come on. That alone should be enough. Hey, everyone. Uh, George here from the future, jumping in to say I did a bad job explaining this or thinking about how it would sound in audio form because this was also a live stream. But the Exhibit A that I'm describing was a picture of Airbud from the beginning of the movie when he's dressed in his clown outfit and looking very cute, if I say so myself. But I will, I will continue, Your Honors. He's played by Buddy the Dog, who did all his own stunts, I might add. He also knows his worth. He refuses to work for the abuse of Michael Jeter. He rips up the threatening newspaper at the end to shove it in his face. But you pay him fair wages of vanilla pudding cups, and he'll be out there with his nose to the grindstone. And you know how sensitive dog noses are. Exhibit C. One thing that every dog knows. Ball is life. My man can hoop, and there ain't no rule says the dog can't. He joins the Timberwolves and isn't satisfied to just do stunt shots. He may be a golden retriever, but he is a bulldog in the paint. He is clutching that ball with a damn death grip. Does he dribble? No. No but he might drool a little bit. He's also smart. 
He figures out how to get up to the second floor window from the outside of this kid's house to reach his pal. I'm also pretty sure that he was drawing up plays at the end of the at the end of the movie. He teaches the main kid, who I'm pretty sure didn't actually have a name, to stand up for himself and try out for the basketball team where he gets the bully to transfer to a whole other school. That's how powerful this dog is. He also prompts both the get I don't want you anymore line and I'll see you in court to all timer, all timer lines. And truly, there ain't no rule that says a dog can't play basketball. And he broke that glass ceiling for dogs everywhere. And to sort of uh, break beyond this, this sort of uh, overly sincere representation of Airbud, I will also say that. When you ask people about famous dog characters, you know Air Bud is at the top of the list. And you know that if you say there's no rule that says a dog can't play basketball, people know what that's referencing. And honestly, when I watched it again, I really had like a pretty fun time with it. It's not like the best movie, but it was pretty fun. And 100% of the enjoyment of the movie comes from the dog. So I'm thinking that this is the best dog character in movies. George, I'm going to ask for the the sake of fairness that you also screen share a a picture of dog from Mad Max. I have I have a picture that I want to screen share if that if that works because this this image is vital to the argument. If you guys if you guys have seen it, this shot in the film. Just look at that face. Look at the dog acting. In the context of this, Max is eating dog food. He's opened a can of Dinky D, meat and vegetables, and this dog has taken notice. Look at this face, his position, the way the paws are up against a body like that, the way he's kind of spreading the way dogs do, and the way he is juxtaposed with Bruce Spence behind him in the very similar position. A couple seconds after this, Bruce Spence gets up and makes a very similar face. He plays off of blue of bruce pence in such a wonderful wonderful way so i mean look at this he's a blue healer he's absolutely adorable and he is more than capable of being max's faithful and very useful companion i mean hey Airbud playing basketball very impressive this dog can shoot a man with a shotgun <laughs> you know like i that to me sounds a little more impressive i don't know I'll counter that by saying that Airbud teaches a boy at a formative age to not <laughs> resort to violence and does not need to shoot people. Um, Airbud knows that the children are our future, and if you teach them well, you let them lead the way. Um, hey, at the end of the day, it's a dog playing with the ball. I think I this is question. no. That's so. That's so minimizing the, dog the impact. Not I think teaching we need to call some order. Whatever. We've that's, got a question. Okay, all right. All right you guys <laughs> settle down. I got a question settle for down. George here. Were there any illegal substances used <laughs> while the viewing of Airbud was going on? I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> they were not illegal for me because I have a license. <laughs> mm. We might have to judges, we might have to take that. Yeah. In against, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. Um, Airbud. Oh, wait. I just real quickly, I do want to clarify, George, you are arguing that Airbud teaches kids not to use firearms. Is that correct? <laughs> I'm saying that he teaches them to avoid violence. There is a bully character in the movie who is very aggressive, and I am 90% sure that that kid's dad beats him because he is well, so aggressive. 
with that child. And it's our next case. We all know. <laughs> we all know the cycle of violence perpetuates, and this bully child is taking it out on the main child, and he is sullen and retreating into himself and miserable at the beginning of the movie. And like so many important therapy animals do, Airbud teaches this boy to come out of his shell and to accept himself. And I really think that while Dog is great and he's very cute and sure, it's very impressive, I guess, that he can murder something I'm actually against. <laughs> I just think that Airbud is more instructional and we also must consider the legacy that Airbud has. Okay. I didn't want to resort to this, but was Dog a golden receiver? I don't think so. Did he have uh, space buddies uh, and Christmas buddies? You, you yeah, yeah, hey, hey, you don't hey, object. Hey. You, you, you don't yeah. object. I'm a judge. Whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you, you don't touch the judge like that. I'm gripping him by the, by the scruff. <laughs> Can you prove that the air buddies are his spawn? They are his litter. Yes. Canonically, they are his litter. No. And they go to space. <laughs> oh, that I cannot prove, I'm afraid. But I it's the best, best dog character. Best dog character. Okay. George, previously, and one of the other questions we talked about, we talked about the legacy of something sort of working against it. I would argue that Space Buddies might ding Air Bud a little bit. Could you elaborate? I will elaborate. And I'm actually really glad that you brought this up because despite the proliferation of lesser sequels like Space Buddies and Christmas Buddies and everything, Airbud remains a fixed figure in the popular mind, in the popular culture. People still absolutely know the first movie. This is the one that sticks out to them. The quote that they know is from it. I'll see you in court. Even if they don't know they're referencing it, they are referencing it. Michael Jeter, when you Hold see on, his wait. face... Are we, are we saying Airbud invented the phrase, I'll see you in court? I am is saying that. that. I, am, I am arguing that, yes. And I'm <laughs> saying that... I'll see you in court right the hell now, Greg. And um, I think that it's it's incredible that Michael Jeter, who is a real good character actor, is forced to go toe-to-toe with a dog. And that the dog holds their own. In the final scene, I know you boys watched it. In the final scene, when he's holding out for the dog and he's trying to get him to come over... That dog is goddamn acting. He takes that pa- that paper out of his hand and he shreds it up and he throws it back in his face. And you're watching two real actors act at each other. And and I know that Greg is going to say that that's the case for Dog 2 and maybe that is the case, but the fact is that it's not something you would expect from Airbud. And the fact that that's happening in addition to all of the other great fun moments where he's not murdering people and having a good time playing basketball, which basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way he dribbles up and down the court. I just I I don't think that there's any way that dog uh, raises a leg. We're We're talking about dog acting. I want to call attention to a moment in Mad Max that is some of the most nuanced and subtle dog acting in any movie ever. And it is when he is holding the shotgun on Bruce Betts. He's got a bone in his mouth. The string is attached to the trigger. It's very cute. Bruce Spence is on pins and needles trying to appease his dog. Could end his life at any moment. In the background, 
outside of the car that is speeding down the highway. A rabbit runs by. And this dog, you watch his eyes. His eyes flick to the rabbit. You see the <laughs> you see the the uh, distress inside of dog. He wants to bark at this rabbit. He wants to pull and pull this trigger and shoot Bruce Spence by accident. It's a it's a great moment of tension where we think, okay, well the dog saw this rabbit. It's all over. But dog remains true to his master and to his mission, and he manages to stay focused. And his eyes come back to Bruce Spence, and he stays locked and focused, despite the distraction outside. It is some of the most complex dog acting there can be. Look. You see the inner, tor- inner turmoil inside this character. You see his heart rending because he wants to go after that <laughs> damn rabbit. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's all there. It's in his eyes. It's in his eyes. All right, look, mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that dog is perfectly adequate, serviceable, for his one movie that he's used in. But Airbud is versatile. He is great for drama moments. When the child is crying because his father is dead and all he has is Buddy to, to support him because his mom is working two jobs. It's not called Moonlighting. Plenty of people have two jobs, she, as, she, as she tells her mother. Um, Buddy is all that's there for this child. And yet, in the next scene... He'll be making you laugh with his beautiful carnival antics. You know, he is a stunt dog at his core, and boy, does he lay it out. And the fact that he is able to be deployed into further movies in different situations, different sports, he is just so versatile. He has the range that dog just simply does not. I want to discuss dog, not the character, but the actor. Uh, the film, the production of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, saved this dog's life. He was picked up in a shelter in Sydney. He was one day away from being euthanized because he was a notorious tire chaser. He would chase after tires and bite them as if he was hurting them. And I guess in Australia, this is a death sentence if you're a dog. So George Miller says, go find a dog. The person goes and finds a dog. They, re- they save his life. He was not a trained animal actor, and yet he pulls off the bombastic performance he, he, he fucking nails in Mad Max The Road Warrior. And afterwards, he went and lived on a farm happily, happily ever after. I saw someone in YouTube comments say, the dog in Airbud is, I think, Comet from Full House. This is a working dog. This is just another day to him. For Mad Max 2, that, that movie to dog is his one shot at fame, and he completely nails it. There's not a wasted moment of him on screen. I don't want to say that that doesn't matter because it's a beautiful story. But the fact of the matter is that the question was about the character. And ultimately, that doesn't really impact the character. I think that Air Bud is a consummate professional. Buddy just knows exactly what he needs to do. He is so perfectly suited for the role. And, yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's a bad thing to be trained and good at your job. You know, I think that Buddy is is bringing it for the movie. They knew what they needed, and they went and got the right man for the job. And that's why the character is the best, because they got the right dog for the role. I, I might argue, I don't know if he is the right dog for the role. Because, to me, Golden Retriever 
that is a dog that is about you go and you find and you bring something back, right? None of that is conducive to playing basketball. Golden Receiver, the sequel, maybe you got an argument with the right dog because, hey, the, it's right there in the title, you know? <laughs> dog, however, he is a blue healer that is an Australian cattle dog. He makes sense for the, the setting of the movie in Australia, and it is thematically relevant to Max's character. He himself, what is he if not some sort of Australian shepherd leading people in this wasteland and trying times? That dog, he is thematically relevant to Max's character. Mm. Fellow judges, any any follow-ups? I'm ready to vote. I'm looking up one, one thing here. <laughs> I didn't realize there was going to be fact-checking. Uh, hey, you know what? I didn't even bring up... Uh, all the things that Airbud has been saying on Twitter lately. Wow. Wow. You know? He's, he's stoked about Musk <laughs> being charged, I heard. Yeah. I'm look at his likes. Something. Just look at it look at You're his good. likes is all I'll say. It tells you all you need to know. Um Mad Max takes place in a dystopian future, a land without rules. Airbud takes place on the court with a rule book. <laughs> so true. Um George, please elaborate on now, personally, I'm a rule follower, okay? Uh, but I'm not too keen on people who use the rule book for their, their own advantages. Now, mm. personally, I think it is unfair for a dog to play basketball. I believe he has certain skills that ultimately give him an advantage. He's lower to the ground. He can make faster steals. Not to mention the fact that he's a fucking dog. And some of these children might be afraid to, I don't know, put a little bit of pressure, you know, run a pick, <laughs> anything on yeah. this fucking dog, because it, it, it just right. might snap now. So he is a great basketball player, is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I, I understand the spirit yeah, of your okay. question. And I'll, I'll say that, to me, the team was in a really bad spot, Bones. You saw the movie, you know this. They had they were having a very losing season. Their coach abandoned them and or died in the middle of the season. I don't quite recall, but he had to leave in the middle. And suddenly this new coach is there. He's just trying to get them to have fun. The kid gets injured on the court in this final match, this final this final matchup between them and their rivals, which the bully went on to the other team. They're playing the bully kid and they're out of player. They don't have enough players to field and and continue the game and you want to take this away from these poor children who are just trying to build a little self-esteem and play an after-school sport bones you want to take that away from them and just say oh no even though the rule book doesn't say that this dog can't play i'm going to spontaneously come up with a rule that says it specifically so that this team can't continue the game he was already registered as a member of the team long in advance of the game he's on the roster there was no rule that says he couldn't play. In my opinion, he's part of the team, and you're being awfully exclusionary. He's a crutch. Bailiff? Or just a really bad right. basketball team. Bailiff? Ke- ke- yeah. Let- let's watch yourself here, George. With what I'm you sorry, but I just have to speak here. my truth. I can truth. take it. I can take it. Okay. You, you-, you can do it respectfully. Uh, bailiff, put your hand saying. on your baton to, <laughs> <laughs> to threaten me. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm threatened. I'm officially Stand threatened. Stand in front of him. Stand in front of him. <laughs> Jeez. Greg, I would like to give you the the opportunity to elaborate a little bit more on character impact. Now, Airbud, he comes to uh, a child who has lost his father and is sort of an 
not just an emotional support, but a, an athletic support. Can you elaborate a little bit more on on the importance of of dog to Max? Yeah, like I said, no man is an island, although Max certainly believes he is. At the, at the ending of the first film, he loses his wife and his child, and it is what causes him to go mad, to become the titular Mad Max. However, Dog in the sequel, the fact that he is traveling with the dog, unbeknownst to him, means he still has a semblance of reason and sanity, because he has this animal he can care for. However, because the dog is not named, he's still trying to distance himself from emotions, from other people, from creatures and beings that need his help and support. So, eventually, and, uh, you know, spoilers from Mad Max, Dog is, is tragically killed by Marauders. Um, and this is extremely important to Max's character arc, because it shows him this entire time, I have had it within me to love and care for the people and things around me that are important to me, and I need to fight to protect them as best I can. And this is what convinces him to go back and lead this colony of people to safety, fleeing uh, the dreaded Lord Humongous. So it is absolutely a integral piece of Max's story. I'm ready. All right, yeah, let's hear it. Airbud is a cheater. <laughs> he is disloyal to his original owner. Who beat him? I mean, if we want to go back to your photo... That dog looks pretty fucking miserable, right? And you could argue that, oh, that's because he's having to be with this clown. And, and I would also say that uh, Greg has the advantage here because this dog wanted to do this stuff. They fucking put clown outfits and red noses and shit on poor little Airbud just for a joke, just for... There ain't no rule book, or ain't no rule says dog can't play. So, I think uh, dog from Mad Max Two is just a, a a staple of the of the loyal action dog. I also don't want to I don't want to spoil for those people that haven't seen what happens to said dog, but I think you get a little bit of a, an emotional advantage there. So, I'm coming down Mad Max Two. Thank you, Honorable Judge Bones. Well said. I'm going to jump in here. Uh, right off the bat, George, I would like to commend you for, during your arguments, taking the brave stance of, I am personally against murder. <laughs> Thank you. I felt felt like it needed to be said. Listen, this was, t- in my opinion, easiest argument of the night. One dog plays basketball. One dog fights through the post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> it's dog in Mad Max 2. It's gotta be. Wow. It's very easy here. Um, some rich-ass golden retriever living the ultimate life. And then you got this dog that doesn't know when his world's gonna end. So yeah, it's Mad Max. It's Mad wow. Max 2. Thank dog. you. I respect your decision, judges. Even if Thank I disagree, you're hard fought, George. Lord Sol- <laughs> Solomon himself could not have adjudicated so wisely, Your Honor. <laughs> Thank you so much. I Thank think you. he could have actually, and he would have chosen. <laughs> he would have chosen dog as well. Yeah, but it's so clear. 
Wow. Well, you know what? I respect it. It was a, it was a great argument, Greg. You you earned that one for sure. Thank you. Thank Did, you. Let me ask. Let me ask the judges. Did anyone get any enjoyment out of Airbud watching it this time, or was I the only one? I I genuinely have a tough time with the ain't no rule bullshit. Like it's pretty. Wow. Fu- he's a dog. He's on the I, team. I don't give he's a on shit. the team. He make him a mascot. Make him do. He was a uh, mascot. That's why he's on okay. the team. He could. He could. Okay. He could right. shoot. I want right. to he hear can, from the rest. Of here, them. Here's the, here's the deal. <laughs> he is unable to to make his own free throws. He requires mm. the referee to throw him the ball in order for him to They'll, shoot a free throw. That disqual the referee always inbounds the ball. Okay, but it, let's say the the ball fell. The the player can't pick it back up. There isn't a dribble required. Like the Luckily the ref has happen. to, without that perfect arch thrown to Airbud, he's useless. That immediately disqualifies him. All right. What about the other judges? Any enjoyment? He has the yeah. advantage of two other legs. I guess to answer the question, yeah, it was mildly enjoyable, but a fun dog doing tricks. You follow it up with Mad Max too. It's not <laughs> easy. Yeah, you should have watched him in the other direction. <laughs> also, you know, I know it's a basketball, and obviously dogs love balls, but this it it did require the production to repeatedly throw a ball at a dog's face, a large ball, not like a tennis ball that you can easily catch at his mouth or anything. You mm. know. Hmm. You throw a little too hard, a little too fast, you're breaking that dog's nose. I guess, I guess. Bailiff, I think we're going to hand over the the role of asking the lightning questions to you, my friend. Can you? Oh, uh, you got it, Judge. I think on the lightning um, round two, it's you, you just shout out your answer and then argue, and then the other person will answer after. Okay. Is that is that everybody's understanding? Okay. So it's, it's first to answer, yeah. right? You're, the you're the way judge. it had been done before is you both shout like it's shout out an answer, but then you both answer first so you know what you're arguing against. Okay, well, I couldn't remember. <laughs> we'll do that. <laughs> All right. So uh, after the planned round, uh, George is up by two to one to Greg. Uh, here's your first lightning round question. Which prominent director, active in the 80s and or 90s, would have or could make the most interesting comic book movie? David Lynch. Greg? Boy. I don't know exactly the rules of the lightning round, but I think we've got to go <laughs> oh, faster. Oh, my we, God. We, Whoa. The, the court will allow some time <laughs> for this to be considered. Okay. Okay, pardon me. I didn't mean to job. step out of line. Jeez. You're okay, bailiff. You're All right. Okay, bailiff. Oh my, my word. Um, going to have to get a bailiff to watch this I, I'm just going to go see. I'm going to go super simple and just say Steven Spielberg. <laughs> okay. Should I, should I just jump in? Do it. Okay. Um, we have seen not only what David Lynch can do with a movie, but we've even seen what David Lynch can do with an adaptation. Not only his adaptation of Dune, which... Say what you want. At least it's fucking interesting. Like, I definitely prefer it to the Villeneuve one. Just on a visual standpoint, there's just more entertainment packed into every fiber of that movie because it is fucking bizarre. But more to the point, we've also seen what he can do with uh, with adapting Wild at Heart. Not a lot of people are aware that that is actually a book first written by Barry Gifford, but I've read the book. It's pretty good, but David's 
flair that he brings to a work is so palpable. You see it time and time again. The things that he adds to the movie are so impactful. All the Wizard of Oz stuff is obviously all Dave. And I think that giving him uh, such a such a visual medium like comic book movies are supposed to be, you know, he also has a history as a visual artist. So I'm thinking that he's going to be able to really do some incredible storyboards, get it looking just right, and uh, and just fucking knock this thing out of the park. And you know it won't be boring. Not like the same bullshit you get with all of these other comic book movies. Greg? You know, it does. It, it breaks my heart a little bit to argue against my, you know, Uncle David on his own birthday. This is a low move by, by George. <laughs> But I will say, hey, you mentioned two adaptations he's done. Those are those are books. Adapting comic books is a whole different beast. Okay, and I will say too, you know what? Props to your answer because David Lynch has created a comic of his own. He wrote the angriest dog in the world. In the world. Yes. But here's the thing: he made it an anti-comic. He would not make a comic book movie that would appeal to everybody. He would not make a comic book movie yes. that is going to go that is going to stay true to the tenets of whatever he's adapting. He's going to do his own thing, and it's going to be weird as an adaptation. Which, hey, look, that has its own appeal. However, Steven Spielberg, he's going to get at the core what works about whatever comic he's adapting, and he's going to bring that to life in glorious color on the big screen. He is going to make sure that it works just as the comic book intended, and he's going to make it visually fascinating. Not to say Lynch won't, but Lynch is not interested in being true to his source material. I think if you're talking today's modern day, whatever you're adapting, you want to have a little bit of truth to it, a little bit of truth in the adaptation. And Spielberg, hey, you know what? You can honestly say, I think he's already made a comic book movie. He actually made Adventures of Tintin. That is a fucking fantastic film that captures the adventurous spirit of its source material, but is also doing all of these crazy, fun insanely well thought out action sequences that that are just a joy to watch i mean what you described is starship troopers i I mean something that is an anti-version of the source material that totally shifts it on its head and creates something weird and unique that's starship troopers and and that's what dave would absolutely bring to it i think that you also have to consider his movie Dumbland, which is almost basically a comic book movie it's like almost in the same world as uh as the angriest dog in the world. You know, objection that is a series, not a film. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, I've seen it. I've Sustained. seen it put together into a film version. Oh, okay, I've seen okay. it put together well, can, into a short version. Uh, yeah, you can see anything film. in, you know, you can edit together whatever you want. Does not make it, you know, well, a film. Uh, okay, fine. So he did a comic book TV show. And so now <laughs> I'm saying it's time to step it up to the big leagues. He's ready for his shot. Give this man a comic book movie and let him do whatever he wants with it. I'm ready. Judges. Uh, before, before, hold on. Can I get okay. ask one yeah. question? N- name a comic, George, that David Lynch should adapt. That, you that wasn't, that's adapt. not, that wasn't put before. I think it's going to factor in. I think it's going to factor I in. I refuse to answer this question. I would, I would mm. defer to mm. David. Whatever he wants to do, I would defer to him. Mm. Because he Tell knows him. better. He knows better. Judges, Tell should him. George answer the question? No. I don't think he needs to. Okay. Yeah. I'll allow, I'll uh george are a bit of a disadvantage here because i am not a big david lynch uh fan um i i like to rectify that potentially i just it it hasn't hasn't come my way much um but what i've seen of him seems very uh specific 
compare that to what I've seen of Spielberg, um, the man is much more broad and much more emotional. And I think he would do action better. And when I see a comic book movie, I want to see action. I'm going to, I'm coming down Spielberg. Well, DC, I don't, they might as well just give it to Lynch right now. Cause <laughs> I'm shit. From what I hear. Um, yeah, if we're talking big budget Marvel, no one said that though. <laughs> it's a comic book movie. That's the only people that make comic book movies. Blade is a comic book movie. It's That's Marvel. Marvel. Lean and mean. Yeah, it's lean and mean though. This is the nineties, George. I'm, but um, you you think that all right? Whatever. <laughs> make your make your decision. This is right now. So Marvel or DC is going to have to contact David Lynch or Mr. Spielberg, and. I would be way more interested to see what David Lynch could do. So I think I'm going with David Lynch. You're arguing against the judge. <laughs> You're right. I should, I got ahead of myself. I apologize, judge. Thank you for your, for your vote. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't know. I guess the way that I come down on this is like, if these two guys both made a comic book movie tomorrow, there's like a, one in 50 chance that the Lynch one could be the coolest comic book movie ever (laughs) because it would be so outside. It would be so unique. It would be such a different take on it, but I don't know. I mean, the other 49 times I'd probably make that wager on Spielberg doing a better job. I'm going to go with Steven Spielberg. Ooh, I respect it. I respect it. Good answer, Greg. Good answer. Thank you. That's the thing. I, I don't want Lynch beholden to anyone else's work. I think whoever this comic book creator is, it's got to be somebody real close to him. He cannot just uh, pick up any book on the shelf and adapt it. And, you know, it's got to be something that's close and personal to him, which I just don't see him getting close and personal with many comics. Could be. Could be. All right, Yuse. After four rounds, Greg has made a crazy comeback, wow. and it's now tied up two to two. Lightning question number two. Outside of The Shining, what is the best movie based on a Stephen King novel or short story? Note, this does not need to be the best adaptation, but the best Carrie. executed film. Oh, Carrie's off the board. Oh. Answer again. Christine. <laughs> um, the Running Man. Christine is so fun and it kind of gets overlooked i feel like when people talk about stephen king adaptations but i think that it deserves merit just for using bad to the bone in a way that doesn't make me want to throw myself off a bridge like it's incredible movie the the look of it is so so fun john carpenter i mean my man just kills it he is he could have just done a mercenary job on this, but I think that he is bringing a lot of fun to it. You know, there's so many great practical effects with the car getting crushed and chasing people down and lighting on fire. You get Arnie yelling shitter all the time. It's bizarre. It's fun. And I think that it's incredible because it is better than the book. I have read the book. I think that it's a fine Stephen King book, but I think that Christine, the movie is fantastic, and um, and it's just a great example of like 
kids being assholes to each other in a way that felt real. Greg? I, I think you're correct. Yeah, I, you're correct. It is a better than its source material. However, The Running Man as an adaptation is so much more interesting because Carpenter makes, he makes deviations from the book that do have big differences. That is true. However, The Running Man takes what is a short story that has got some interesting ideas in it, and it makes it a wild, incredibly fun, out-and-out action just thrill ride. And it actually, it also improves on its source material. The central idea being that a man is forced to go on this giant game show that is all a metaphor for how like society has crumbled and all this stuff. It makes zero sense in the book. The actual game show part of it is is like less than you know half baked. However, the game in the Running Man in the movie, it could not be more conducive to just a fun ass time. You get Arnold Schwarzenegger, the peak of his powers, going up against a bunch a bunch of like weird wild you know themed villains you got him throwing out one-liners you got richard dawson you know just like the the a a american staple like a staple of american television and of game shows he's out there doing his what he does best bringing a real fun incredible energy to what is a you know like a mediocre stephen king story and is it true to it not really but is it all the better for all the changes they made? Absolutely. I think The Running Man is a like okay movie if you have had wow. a few beers and you're watching it with your wow. friends. But Christine is just fantastic out and out. And I think the fact of the matter is, is that it's a generational movie. It was selected for the Best Little Horror House in Philly by my own father. Mm. He came on to discuss it as the best horror movie ever made. And it is a beautiful connection point as a Stephen King story, as a movie. And I mean, it's, it has truly become part of my life. I mean, my, I don't drive a lot because I'm in the city. So I uh, took my grandmother's car, which is an older uh, red Cadillac. And uh, I named her Christina because it's not Christine, but it's as close as I'm going to get. And so (laughs) You know, it's it's just something that I have folded into my life, and that is not something that I think anybody would say about The Running Man, as fun as it may be. I'm just going to say, I mean, it is, uh, I think, got more going for it than just the whole few beers argument. I think you look at that movie, I think it's got excellent production design. I think it has incredible music in a time when, you know, it's the 80s, and sometimes there's an ironic enjoyment, I think, to, like, 80s soundtracks, but it is it is quality music. Better than Carpenter? I love that production. Hey, hey look, man. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Carps on the ones and twos? <laughs> um, the running... It, I can just only fall back on the line, Sub-Zero, now just plain zero. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than, than that, in terms of just you know, <laughs> audience-pleasing filmmaking. All right, judges. Judge Dan, please. I'm I'm going with Christine. I, I just, I think it's more fun time. Uh, yeah, a lot of work there done with the cars, and I just recently watched it, too, so. <laughs> it's pretty fresh. <laughs> pretty fresh. <so. laughs> Thank you, Judge Laundry Dan. Karan? All right, guys. Um, uh, at 
right off the bat, I want to apologize to both of you because you both answered correctly right off the jump. Uh, the, the answer I, I will was say, Carrie. I will say I said Carrie first, too. I don't, know I don't agree. I don't I agree. <laughs> it was off the table, but I just want to say you both got it right. So uh, pat yourselves on the Good back. Answer. However Good answer. Good answer. The Running Man does have a lot going for it. Like, I think that it is a really fun movie, and I think it does kind of punch above its weight. Like, I feel like people do kind of kick that one down, don't really put it, you know, as high as it probably deserves to be. Um, you got a great villain in Dynamo. I mean, what a confusing, baffling character he is. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, if I do think about both of these movies uh christine is definitely the one that i have returned to more and will return to more um there's just great shots um carpenter was at a weird point after the thing i do think he kind of came in and made a you know i'm a director that knows where to put the camera kind of movie um (laughs) but when you take into account like the music the filmmaking the technique the action I feel like that's a movie where every time I return to it, there's like a new thing that jumps out where it's like, wow, that's really creative or that's just an impressive bit of filmmaking. So I'm going to come down with a vote for Christine. Thank you, Judge Cron. Honestly, I would have been mad if if I had won that one. I mean, (laughs) I was fighting over scraps there. Uh, Judge Bones, do you I want mean, to weigh I'm in at all here before we move uh, on? Torn here, so I think the uh, the personal element will come through. I would be coming down. Well, I will say this: a big thing with Stephen King is the Americana, right? What what America was, what it is, and what it could be. And Christine relies heavily on on what it was and that sort of nostalgia factor. And Running Man, sadly, is like, hey, this is what could happen. And the bummer being that it sort of it we're closer to a Running Man reality than we are a uh, a Christine reality. So I would have come down on on Running Man. Gotcha. Thank you, Judge. After five rounds, that means that George is now ahead three to two. Greg needs to get this final question to tie it up. So number three for the lightning round. Best religious nutcase performance in a movie. Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson. <sighs> Lori Piper, Carrie. Oh, wait. Did I misinterpret the question? Oh, you want the character to be a religious <laughs> nutcase? <laughs> I, I think it was a character-based question. <laughs> oh, okay. Can I, can I revise my answer then? Um, I'll, I'll say... Um, oh, boy. I'll say... Um, What's that, Greg? Am I able to change my answer? I just thought of a new one. I'm fine with it. I'm I think if yeah, I think if we're allowing George in this instance to to change, you may change. Please. But George gets the answer first. Okay. Oh. Um, I'm gonna say the um, the the the. the uh, I'll take Piper Laurie. I'll take Gary. Okay. I'm gonna say Sergeant Howie from The Wicker Man. Okay. So does that now count? Do I now start since uh, I technically went first yeah. here? I think okay. so. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you said it earlier. Carrie is the best Stephen King adaptation by a significant measure for my money. And 
while um, while Sissy Spacek certainly gets the uh, flashier role, I think that you only get to have the movie itself if there's nowhere for Carrie to run. If she doesn't have a, a source of solace. And, and we need the full rejection by Carrie's mother. And, and Piper Laurie does it with such flair. You know, it's, it rides the line so perfectly of being caricature, but also believable. Where you're like, I feel like I have known people when, like, when she kind of hides it. When she goes to the other girl's house and like goes to be like, oh hey, we have these Bibles or whatever to give you, and she kind of like puts it in check, and the other uh, the other mom is still like kind of rude to her, and so finally she leaves, and she's like, oh, you're gonna burn in hell or whatever. It's it's just such a perfect foil for Carrie, and um, and the really the movie rides rides on her shoulders ultimately. Greg. Yeah, Sergeant Howie from The Wicker Man is a police sergeant that goes to a little remote island up the coast of Great Britain to investigate a girl's disappearance. And over the course of it, you come to learn how much of a religious Catholic nut job he is. And his Catholicism is absolutely inherent to the uh, story that is being told. It is not even immediately inherent to what's going on. However, it becomes a clash of ideologies and religion, and Howie's fanaticism becomes his downfall. It is so integral to his his character that he is not able to look past his Christian or Catholic values to see what is actually going on here on the island. And it becomes a battle of wits between him and the wonderful Christopher Lee, who is the leader of this like pagan cult on this uh, on Summer Isle, and every decision basically that Howie makes is motivated by his intense Catholicism, by his intense belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it becomes his ultimate downfall. It is such a great movie that examines it challenges Christianity in such a way that I think few movies were brave enough to do, especially at the time of its release, and. Piper Laurie, great performance, great use of religious fanaticism, but the fact that in The Wicker Man, it dominates like every scene of that film. It is this this idea of people who believe so hard in their religion that they are willing to kill and or die for their beliefs. I think you could absolutely say the same about Carrie. Um, the religious fanaticism dominates it from the word go in just the not teaching our children about sex and about their bodies and and the the rejection of ourselves that comes with religious shame and and all of that comes through the family trauma of Mrs. White and you know I think that as true as it is that Howie as a character his religiousness is certainly driving him he is reserved. He kind of, because he's surrounded by these pagans, he withdraws into himself. And he's like that beetle spinning around. You know, we all know that scene. It's a very impressive scene with the beetle uh, around the pencil, the maypole or whatever. And it's great. But Howie just gets quieter and quieter as he becomes more and more dogged. 
Meanwhile, you have the incredible camp flair of Piper Laurie as Mrs. White. You know, she is painting the screen with capital A acting. Like, it is truly on another level. And Brian De Palma knew exactly how to utilize it, especially when when Carrie herself is, like, pleading with her to see her and to, like, in- engage with her as a person. The, the camp overacting is not... It fits so well because it almost seems like she's in another movie in, in, in such a great way. Because... It, you see that she's in her own world, that she is lost in these religious fanaticisms. And and because of that, she cannot engage with her daughter and it leads to her own downfall exactly the same way that Howie's does. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue against the idea that Howie gets more reserved. He pulls a school teacher out of a classroom and braids her for teaching sex ed because it goes against his religion. You know, he tells her that she's like damning these children to eternal hell, you know. I, I, I don't think he becomes reserved. I think he becomes more explosive as he starts to see things that go against his personal beliefs. And he makes sure the town knows it. He calls them heathens. He says they are going against the will of God. He makes it clear that his personal investment in being a policeman is not to enforce the laws, but to enforce God's will. And I think it's it's very telling, his reactions to everything he sees on the island. And I also say, too, I, he is this type of fanatic, and of course Hyper Laurie is this as well, but I think it's it's more nuanced in The Wicker Man that he is an absolute hypocrite. He is decrying these people for their practices and their beliefs, not realizing the pagan origins of Christianity and that what they are doing, the rituals they're performing, not that much different than a Catholic mass. He is eating bread that's symbolizing someone's flesh, you know, but he cannot see that. He is so blinded by the culture and the widespread prevalence of Christianity. There's no doubt in his mind that he is correct in doing the right thing. And the final, the, I won't spoil the finale in case anyone hasn't seen it, but that finale, he is calling out to Jesus, and it is one of the most heart-wrenching and upsetting things you'll ever see in a movie, because he believes every word he is saying. When he calls, oh, Jesus Christ, he is really calling out to Jesus. And Edward Woodward, the performer, like absolutely sells it. The desperation in his voice as he's saying it is palpable. All right, judges. All right, I'll jump in. I think these are two very interesting selections. Um, If I think about The Wicker Man, to me, that movie feels like this one guy, uh, you know, going up against something that he doesn't understand, like not that he doesn't understand it deeply. Like he doesn't understand the surface level of it to begin with. And as you go further into that film, it just, you know, he gets further and further down the rabbit hole and he'll never come out the other end of it. So I think it's a very interesting movie in that sense of, you know, it just kind of grows and expands the further you get into it. I think with Carrie, it's, I mean, Carrie gets really big and crazy in its own way, but I feel like that character is more relatable. You know, like I, I feel like I've met people that have, you know, vague shades of Piper Laurie's character. Like it's a little bit more like grounded in at least, you know, people that I've seen or met. And it's, it's worrisome to see those things in people. But I think it's such an interesting kind of back and forth between how her and Carrie interact and, you know, what Carrie is capable of doing is 
is more powerful than this thing that her mother has put all of her faith into. I really like both of these answers. I think at the end of the day, I'm going to go with Carrie here. Thank you, Judge Cron. I, I was kind of thinking the same lines of uh, Judge Cron there that yeah, the I think the uh, Piper's performance is folks that you've I've come across and been like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, and I think she's a little more fanatical. Uh, Wicker Man's a, like. I agree. I think I agree with George. It's a little more quieter, but it's there. I, Greg's got. That's uh, a good argument. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm. F- I'm f- falling for Carrie. Thank you, Judge Laundry Dan. Wow. <laughs> Judge Bones has stormed off. He's breaking stuff. <laughs> he just punched the bailiff. <laughs> oh no, Brantley. <laughs> Bradley, are you okay? Should have got him a gun. This is just too. This yeah, is I'm, too tough, man. I pitched this whole me. thing, and it sucks. <laughs> I mean, I would. I bones. I would love to hear if you have any thoughts. But Greg, that was such a well fought argument, and truly, I was scrambling to think of one and uh and so and you just uh took mine i <laughs> should have first yeah first should have kept yeah yeah yep. i'm sorry i, I'm I sorry. truly feel more strongly about the wicker man but you know right. just, i'm glad yeah, i'm yeah. glad that at least it was an honest fight wow well uh I'm, unless bones has anything to add uh i'll start the wrap up here gentlemen i want to thank you so much for coming on this was super fun i will i did just in case i won uh, get a fresh champagne to uh, to wow. crack here. So let's. Uh... Oh yeah, oh, rubbing yeah. it in, folks. Victory is sweet, but champagne is sweeter. And um, I just had such a great time. I want to thank you guys all for coming on. This was super super fun. Um, I love chatting movies with you. Greg is such an knowledgeable movie fan, enthusiast, veteran. I mean. He knows so much. It was such an honor to go up against you, my friend. You you no, gave an incredible fight. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I was honored to be invited on to, to match wits. Uh, had a great time. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, judges, incredible judging. Of course, I think that as the winter, but uh, I think you were very, very fair. And, uh, and I want to thank you all for coming on and uh, participating in this, gentlemen. Thank you, George. Thanks for having us. It was that our was- pleasure. Uh, absolutely and brantley of course our our faithful bailiff we could not have done this without you uh, it was really great having you here and um of course we we just love getting you back on the show man thanks for coming yeah, thanks for having me you guys have been great can can we hear what the tiebreaker question was brantley oh sure let's hear it oh sure you know me i'm just like a regular philly bailiff you know i love gritty i love a hoagie you know cheesesteak peppers onions and a coke uh, and I love action movies. So I was going to say, outside the top three, the big dogs, Arnold, Sly Stallone, and Bruce Willis, the Planet Hollywood founders, who would you say is the best action movie star of all time? Mm. That was going to be the I don't have to answer because that's fucking hard as shit. <laughs> yeah. We, we all know it's Treat Williams. I mean, of course, of course. 
But also, Bruce Willis as the third one is kind of an odd choice to me, but it's just me personally, you know. Wow. Get their asses. Get their asses, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk plugs, gentlemen. Uh, we'll go around the circle. Greg, uh, you get the place of honor. Please tell people uh, all your plugs. Yeah, thank you. I, I am a co-host of the podcast, The Weekly Podcast Massacre, which is a podcast that focuses on horror movies and distinct subgenres we invent every single month. Uh, we just had an episode come out about the 2007 movie The Invasion, which is a really fun movie to talk about. And that's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, wherever you get them. Absolutely recommend it. They just did some really great episodes about funny games. Yes. And uh, they made me begrudgingly respect it even more. <laughs> Very begrudgingly. Um, but it's a great show, and, and uh, I love listening to it. Ah, thank you. All right, five-day rentals, boys. Let's uh, go around the horn and talk plugs. Bones, hit it up. No, I don't want to do it. <laughs> All right, we're five-day rentals. Uh, we have a podcast. We put out episodes weekly. Like weekly podcast massacre, we pick a weird category every time and just – all three of us will each pick a movie we think meets that criteria. As uh, Outside of that, we're about to start a complete watch of Thunder in Paradise starring Hulk Hogan. <laughs> All three of the people on this Zoom that aren't five-day rentals will be on that podcast as well. So looking Can't forward wait. to that. Yes, likewise, likewise. Uh, and, and Brantley, my man over here, also has a wonderful podcast. Why don't you tell him about it? Yeah, uh, we have the Horror Drafts podcast, me and my wonderful co-host Nick Schwartz. We run that where we invite a guest on to uh, bring us a topic in horror that we draft. And uh, it's a very light and fun uh, horror podcast that uh, I think hopefully uh, lets the guest shine every time. And uh, if people want to check it out, that'd be great. Very, very fun show as well. Highly recommend all three of these. Uh, as far as my plugs, um, Dan and I are working on getting him on the main feed. He's been on the uh, Patreon twice now, and we're going to be talking Zodiac uh, as the best horror movie ever made, which is a movie that I have really been jonesing to talk about. I love it dearly. Really looking forward to that. So good Thank pick, you, Dan. Jackie Chan? Isn't... Jackie Chan would be the... <laughs> I think you got to go Jackie Chan, right? Oh, oh yeah. Man. I mean, I think you're probably right. I, I, I went to right. Chow Yun Fat. Was, mm. was a He's close, line. yeah. Yeah. Also good. Chan, I, I would probably yeah, give Chan, that's, Jack. A, that's a good one. Oh yeah. Also, uh Zodiac's good, but it's no castle freak, so <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Which is no, no Hitcher, true. which is no American Psycho, which is no Return of the Living Dead. <laughs> as far as anything else, I mean you're already a patron if you're listening to this, so you probably are already doing everything. Uh just rate and review if you haven't done that yet, I guess. Thanks. Thanks everyone. Bye.